Everyone seems to be preaching about the open door. And of course, this is the prophetic word which God gave Brother Copeland for this year. But sometimes when we see the open door and we're headed in the direction of the open door, Satan is waiting to stop us right before we get to the door. And sometimes we make it through the door to find that Satan is waiting on the other side of the door. What do you do when you run into a wall? Or what do you do when you know that you're right in the middle of God's will, then something happens that resists you or hinders you from fulfilling what you know God has told you to do? And we all deal with this from time to day, time to time. So today we're going to look at this. And I want us to begin in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 17, where the Apostle Paul writes to the Thessalonians, and he says, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly. I want you to notice that phrase. This was not a small desire, but he endeavored the more abundantly. He worked very hard to do this. We endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with what kind of desire? Great desire. Verse 18. Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan, what? Hindered us. Either underline or circle this word hindered in this verse. This particular word hindered in the Greek language is the word egkapto. And that is a very important word to be used in the context of this verse. And it's one of those old words that can only be translated two ways. So it's very easy to find out what should be the correct interpretation of this verse. This word hindered, the Greek word egkapto, was first of all used to describe a person that was on a trip. He had decided his final destination. Now he is making his journey. He has packed his bags. He has purchased his ticket. He is on the way to his destination when all of a sudden egkapto happens to him. He runs into a place in the road where the road is so deteriorated. The road has become so bumpy until finally you can go no further on that road. A better translation of this word egkapto really would be to hit an impasse. This was the road you needed to get you to your destination. You were on the way. You had made your plans. You bought your ticket. You've spent money. You've invested time. And now you're on the way when all of a sudden you hit an impasse so severe that you are no longer able to take this route. But rather than just stop and get up, you back up and you take the next road. But Paul says this happened to him once and again, which means as he endeavored to get to the city of Thessalonica to see the believers over and over every road he took, he kept hitting impasses which stopped him from reaching them. That's the word hindered, the Greek word egkapto. But it's also an athletic term which describes a runner that is running his race. He is ahead of the rest of the pack when all of a sudden another runner comes up alongside of him, takes his elbow, and elbows him out of the race. And the man loses his leading position because someone elbowed him out of the race. That is the word which the Apostle Paul uses in this verse. And I think it's very interesting that Paul draws attention to himself. Because usually we think that these kind of things happen to common believers. But Paul draws attention to himself, even I, Paul. And by drawing attention to himself, it's like a signal that he sends to the church. This happens to everyone, even to the most well-known. I am an apostle. Even I, Paul, have been hindered. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been hindered in your ministries. Maybe you thought you were on the right track. Maybe you were on the right track. And then something happened that was completely unanticipated, something that took you totally off guard. You would have never expected this one thing to happen as Satan created an impasse so horrific that it stopped you right in the middle of your path. Or perhaps you were well on the way when somebody came up alongside of you and just elbowed you right out of the race. I think any of us that have served the Lord very long have experienced this somewhere along the way. Or what if you've had a shipwreck in your finances? 
or shipwreck in your ministry or shipwreck in your family? What do you do when you've had some kind of a shipwreck in your life? How do you respond to that? And that's what I want to show you today from the Word of God. So open your Bible to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27, where we read about a literal shipwreck that the Apostle Paul went through on his way to the city of Rome. Now, just for the sake of review, Paul had received a word from God when he got saved that part of his destiny was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to the children of Israel, and to kings and to those who were in authority. And now through a long and strange series of events, he finds himself on a ship headed to the city of Rome where he is going to stand in front of Caesar, possibly the very first man to ever stand in front of Caesar and to preach the gospel to Caesar. He knew this was part of his destiny because it was the prophetic word that was spoken over him the day that he was saved. And finally, he is on the ship. The ship sets sail. They move out into the Mediterranean. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 27 and verse 14, but not long after there arose against it, that is against the ship, a tempestuous wind called Euroclidon. And I want you to notice that this wind had a name. This was an annual storm which dropped out of the north of Europe. That's why it's called Euroclidon. Every year it fell onto the Mediterranean Sea. It was the most feared the most serious of all storms on the Mediterranean Sea. In fact, sailors every winter did everything they could to avoid this terrible, terrible wind because most who sailed into this storm never sailed out of this storm. Now the Apostle Paul is on a ship headed to the city of Rome where he is going to appear before Caesar, where he will say to Caesar the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is waiting for that moment, believes that it is part of his destiny when he sails into a storm that he would have never anticipated. And in fact, the storm was so horrific that as you keep reading, the Bible tells us they sailed this way, they sailed that way, trying to sail out of the storm. And finally, they suffered so much damage to their ship, they sailed south to a little island called Clauda. And they came into the south part of that island, had to come into the harbor, literally lift the ship out of the sea, do repairs to the ship. This was time they did not expect to spend. It was money they did not expect to spend. But all of this was a part of his journey. And finally, the ship was dropped back into the sea. They shoved back out to sea and began again to sail toward the city of Rome. And the Bible tells us in verse 18, And we being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they lightened the ship, or now they're throwing things off the ship. And the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. Again, they're unloading the ship. Verse 20, and when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away from us. It looked according to the natural like there would be no deliverance from this storm. But in the middle of the night, an angel of God spoke to the apostle Paul. And look at verse 22. Paul stands before them. He says, and now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, only of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar. I want everybody to say that out loud. Thou must be brought before Caesar. Say it again. Thou must be brought before Caesar. Underline that in verse 24. Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar. And lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Verse 25, wherefore, sirs, be of a good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. And what was told him? Thou must appear before Caesar. Regardless of what you see, regardless of what you feel, you have a destiny in the city of Rome, and you're not going to sink in the bottom of the Mediterranean. You have a destiny. You must appear before Caesar. 
And I want to say to you, friends, that when you're in the middle of a storm and you receive a prophetic word or a word from God, take that, that you might war a good warfare by the word that was spoken over you. The Apostle Paul had no idea the things that he was about to encounter on this trip. And in the middle of the storm, he has now received a word from God, thou must appear before Caesar. The night that he received that word was on the fourth night of the storm. And as you continue reading, we discover they were in the storm for an additional 10 days. And for 10 days, they fought day and night. In fact, this chapter tells us that in the 14 days of that storm, they took no bread for their stomachs. They took no sleep. This storm was so critical. No one had time to think about sleep or eating. They were fighting for their lives. And while they were fighting, one man on the ship had a word from God. I must appear before Caesar. And the Bible tells us in the following verse, but when the 14th night was come, verse 27, as we were driven up and down in Adria, about midnight, the shipmen deemed that they drew nigh to some country. They felt they were coming close to land, but because it was night and because it was dark, they couldn't see. So in verse 28, they sounded, and they found the water to be 20 fathoms deep. And when they had gone a little further, they sounded again, and they found the water now to be 15 fathoms deep. Verse 29. Then fearing lest we should have fallen upon rocks, they cast four anchors out of the stern and wished for the day or waited for the morning. Now the anchors are holding the ship in place in the middle of this horrific storm. Verse 39. And when it was day or when it was morning, they knew not the land, but they discovered a certain creek with a shore into the which they were minded if it were possible to thrust in the ship. When you read this in the original Greek, it becomes a little clearer. It says, and when it was morning, they knew not the land. The word they includes everyone. It's a picture of everyone now on deck. And when the Bible says they knew not the land, it's obvious from the original language that there were clouds or there was low-lying fog. And now they're all trying to peek through the fog to determine what is that island? What is that land? And suddenly there was a break in the fog or there was a break in the clouds. And simultaneously, they all saw something. They saw a certain creek with a shore. The word creek is actually the Greek word for a harbor. And the word shore is the Greek word for a sandy beach. This is exactly what they needed. A harbor would mean an escape from the storm. And the Bible says they all together discovered a certain creek with a shore or a harbor with a sandy beach into the which they were minded, if it were possible, to thrust in the ship. So now they all come together on the deck of the ship to discuss what should we do. They are in the middle of this horrible, horrible storm that is beating their ship. They've been fighting for 14 days. They've had no sleep except for a little bread which the Apostle Paul just fed them. That's all they've had in 14 days. They are physically exhausted, and corporately they are minded. They make a corporate decision if it is possible. We don't know if it's possible, but if it is possible, we need to thrust the ship into this harbor. And the Bible tells us in the following verse, and when they had taken up the anchors, and actually this is a mistranslation, you remember the night before they had dropped four anchors to hold them in place? The Greek actually says when they had cut the anchors. They didn't have time to take up the anchors, and they did not need the weight of the anchors. They were trying to move that boat out of danger as fast as they could. So rather than take the time to bring the anchors back up or to take on that weight, they literally cut the anchors, and that's why the Bible says, they committed themselves unto the sea. That's referring to the anchors. So now they've cut the ropes and they can hear the ropes spinning as the anchors drop into the bottom of the sea. Simultaneously, this verse says, they loosed the rudder band, which is in the bottom of the ship, and they hoisted up the mainsail to the wind and made toward the shore. So now they have unloaded as much as they can. They have cut the anchors. 
They have dropped the rudder band that the boat might move fast. And now they have lifted the mainsail. And because of the violent winds which were blowing on the sea, now the ship begins to move. And the Bible says they made to the shore. This in Greek means they moved with great speed. They were trying to move that ship as fast as they could if it were possible to thrust it into that bay where they would find safety. From where they were to that shore, it looked like clear sailing. That harbor looked like safety to them. When they raised that sail, they knew, they believed they would quickly be thrust into that harbor where they would be saved. They did not know that directly in front of them, lying below the surface of the sea, something was waiting for them. Something they would have never expected, never anticipated. And verse 41 says, And falling into a place where the two seas met, they ran the ship aground. Where the two seas met in Greek actually describes an underwater reef. They couldn't see this with the natural eye. It was below the surface. And they ran the ship aground. And the forepart stuck fast. You could translate it. The forepart of the ship was jammed into the reef. It was so jammed into the reef, the Bible says it remained unmovable. And the hinder part was broken by the violence of the waves. And all the while, the sail is still lifted. The wind is still blowing, which is driving the ship deeper and deeper and deeper into the reef. Now the front of the ship is literally coming apart in the reef below the water. And the back of the ship, the Bible says, is being torn to pieces by the violence of the waves. And the apostle Paul standing in the middle of the ship, whose only desire is that he might get to Rome, that he might appear before Caesar, is now on a ship that is literally coming apart all around him. He can hear the waves beating the ship as the ship begins to come to pieces. And the centurion gave the order that everyone who should swim, should swim. <laughs> Jump off this ship and get to sea as fast as you can. And those who cannot swim, verse 44, and the rest, some on board, some on broken pieces of the ship. When the Bible says some on boards, the Greek actually means anything that floated. It could have been furniture. It could have been a chair and broken pieces of the ship. This was the pieces of the ship that literally came to pieces because of what had happened in the sea. And now there are some swimming to shore. Now there are some clutching onto boxes or holding onto pieces of furniture that is floating while others are holding onto broken boards and they're all dog paddling, heading toward the shore. And among all of those people dog paddling and swimming to save their life is the Apostle Paul. What does faith do? when it has experienced a shipwreck. Do you know what faith does? Faith swims. <laughs> now that may not sound very deep, but you know, the wrong time to have a theological discussion is when you're in the middle of a storm. Paul could have said, I just don't understand why this is happening to me as he treaded water. All I wanted to do was be in the will of God. But you know, there's a time to ask questions and there's a time not to ask questions. And that was not a time to ask a question. Now Paul, with everyone else, is making toward the shore. And finally they get to shore. And chapter 28 and verse 1 tells us, And when they were escaped, then they knew that the island was called Melita. Now look at verse 2. And the what? Barbarous people. We're talking about barbarians. Barbarians. Now it's very strange to me that some of the new translations translate this, And the kindly people. That is such a strange translation. Because the Greek word that is used here is the Greek word barbaros. And by the way, let me tell you, even barbarians had prejudice. When you read the Apostle Paul and he talks about who we are in Christ Jesus, he says in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, neither circumcised, neither uncircumcision, neither barbarian nor Scythian. You notice that? 
Barbarians and Scythians were both barbarians, but Scythians were the very lowest class of the barbarians. And barbarians would say, we may be barbarians, but we are not Scythians. So now Paul is swimming for his life. The whole time, I believe with my whole heart, he's saying to himself, I've got a word from God. I'm not going to die in this sea. I will appear before Caesar. He comes walking up on that beach, salt water in his mouth, his hair drenched, his clothes a mess. He turns around and looks at the sea. Everything he owns just sunk in the bottom of the sea. His luggage, his clothes, his money, his passport, everything he has just sunk to the bottom of the sea. And if he had done like some, he could have walked up on the beach and said, I just don't understand. I was trying to do the will of God. All I wanted to do was get to the city of Rome that I could preach to Caesar. I just don't understand why this happened to me. And then when you read verse 2, it goes on to tell us that when he arrived, it was cold and it was raining. I'll tell you, it'd be hard for this day to get worse. He's just lost everything in the sea. Everything. He's already been fighting the storm for 14 days. Vomiting for 14 days. Not eating for 14 days. Fighting to save his life for 14 days. Now, he listens as a ship comes to pieces all around him. Now he's grabbing onto a board, dog paddling on the beach, comes walking up just to find out, great, this is an island inhabited by barbarians. And if that's not bad enough, it is cold and it's raining. What does faith do when it's at a shipwreck? Swims. You know what faith does when it's cold? Makes a fire. And the next verse tells us that they begin to go around and pick up big bunches of sticks to make a fire. And there's something I really like in that verse. Because Paul was not just sitting on the side watching other people pick up all the sticks. He was a real team player. He was right out there with all the other men on the ship. And the Bible tells us he was gathering up bunches of sticks to lay on the fire. And because it was foggy, because it was raining, he couldn't see very well. He didn't know that when he had picked up a big bunch of sticks, there was a viper laying in the middle of those sticks. He walks over with a big armful of sticks, thinking that he's going to help build a fire. He lays the sticks on the fire, and when the flame hits the snake, the snake charges out of the sticks and fastens onto his hand. And the Bible tells us it was not just a snake, it was a viper. A viper. This word viper describes the most venomous and deadliest of snakes. Now, I know a little bit about snakes because when I was young, I had a lot of snakes. When I was five years old, I had my first group of snakes. They were little ringnecks. My sister brought them to me. It was a whole group of snakes. This will tell you how old I am. I named each one of them after a different member of the Beatles. <laughs> oh, I loved the Beatles. That's what I called my snakes. And then I graduated. And then I got garden snakes and corn snakes and milk snakes and rat snakes and black snakes and all kinds of snakes. And actually, I always had a snake until I married Denise. <laughs> and I even had one when I married Denise. When I was in college, I was a pro at snakes. And I heard about a snake in our city. And it was said this snake could not be tamed. When I heard that, I wanted to buy that snake. 
So I found out where the man lived that owned this snake, and I went to his house. I should have known there was something very wrong when I entered into that house. Because when I walked in the front door, there was a whole row of aquariums filled with cobras. And when I went back to the back of the house where the snake was, it was a reticulated python. And I want to show you how big the snake was. George, would you raise your hand? If you go from George, Billy, would you raise your hand? The snake was about that long. It was a reticulated python, which is the very meanest of all pythons. It was so big, its head with its mouth closed was about the size of my hand. Well, the man that I bought it from was a little twisted because he slept in bed with a snake bigger than that. He slept with a snake. And when I saw this reticulated python, oh, I felt the adrenaline run through me. This snake was beautiful. And I knew it should not be in a private collection. It was too big. This should be in a zoo. And I said, tell me about this snake. He said, I'm terrified of that snake. I said, really, what have you named it? He said, its name is Lucifer. He said, this snake can't be tamed. I said, can't be tamed. So I bought that snake. I changed his name and renamed it after a girl in my journalism class that I did not like. But I was so terrified of this snake that I built a great big cage with multiple levels of wire mesh all the way around this cage and then dropped the snake into the bottom of the cage and locked the top. Immediately, that reticulated python put its body around the exterior of that cage and began to push with its muscles. And when it began to push, I could see the mesh begin to move. Now, that cage was in my bedroom in college. And when I saw it pushing against that wire, I could just imagine that snake popping those staples at night, getting out while I'm sleeping, wrapping itself around my neck, and my roommates finding me dead the next morning with a big reticulated python wrapped around my neck. And when I would walk across the room, that snake would strike at me and would hit the side of that cage. And every time it did that, oh my goodness. I I'm telling you, friends, it was terrifying. I was so scared of that snake, I gave it my bedroom and moved into the living room and slept on the couch. I wouldn't even sleep in the room with that snake. And one day I got tired of sleeping on the couch. And I said, you know, Genesis chapter 1 says that God has given me dominion. And I'm going to take dominion over that snake. I'm going to take charge of that snake. So I figured what I was going to do. I got a big towel. I opened the top of the cage. And I dropped the towel into the cage on top of the snake so the snake couldn't see me coming. <laughs> then I reached my hand in, grabbed that big snake by the back of its neck and began to pull it up out of the cage. This was the first time I'd ever held the snake. I was so excited pulling that snake up out of that cage. I had the snake in my hand and I reached in and grabbed the other end of the snake. And so now I had a snake head here and a snake tail here and a whole lot of snake hanging in between. And I forgot what snakes do when they're like this. It began flipping the middle part of its body up and down almost like a jump rope so hard that I dropped the snake. <sighs> now I'm running from a snake in my bedroom and the door is locked. And that's when I realized my Yorkshire Terrier was in the bedroom with us. 
and the snake is striking toward my little Yorkie. So I took my Yorkie, put it under the blankets of my bed, tucked in the edges so this dog couldn't get out. Now there's this little bump running all over under the blankets of my bed while a snake is chasing me around the room. And my landlord had just painted the windows and all the windows were sealed shut. He painted them shut. I couldn't even get out of a window. And the snake crawled on top of the desk right by the door and laid there almost as if to say, just try to get out of this room. <sighs> so I sat on the bed, looking at that snake. I thought, I know what I'll do. I got that towel. I'll throw the towel on top of the snake, then the snake won't see me coming. So now, it's like a man almost fighting a bull. I'm walking forward with my towel, throwing it on the snake. The snake strikes the towel, it comes right back at me. I try again, I throw the snake, strikes the towel. Now I'm playing catch with a reticulated python. This is not working. And I noticed there was a broom in my room. So I took the broom. And almost like the knights from England, I had my big javelin in my hand. I came running across that room with that broom. I crammed that snake into the wall, took it by the back of the neck. I had the snake walking over to drop it into the cage when all of a sudden that snake flipped and wrapped itself around both of my arms and constricted now I'm bound by a snake and I can't get free. I looked at the clock. My roommates were not coming home for two hours. And for two hours, I sat on the couch with a reticulated python wrapped around my arms, wondering why I'd ever bought this stupid thing. And boy, had I really subdued and taken dominion of that snake. And finally, when they came home, they said, Rick, how long have you been sitting there like that? I'd been sitting like that for two hours. They peeled it off my arms. We put it back in the cage. I locked the cage. And I went to the local pet shop with that big snake and asked them if they would watch it for a few days. And never picked it up. Once I had a copperhead. Yeah, my dad was gone on a trip and the neighbors called me and said, Ricky, there's a little snake in the front yard. Oh, it was so beautiful. Orange. I put it in my jar and took it home and played with it for three days. And then it was time for show and school. I was in the show and tell. I was in the sixth grade, so I took it to school. And not only did I show it, we took it out at the lunch table and handed it all the way down the table and all the way back and put it back in the jar. And finally, my daddy came home and I said, Daddy, 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 I've got a new snake. He came out into the garage as I held the snake up. And he said, Ricky, very slowly put the snake down. I had a big python when Denise and I got married. You know why? Because Tuesday nights was my Bible study. And I was always looking for a way to get people to come to Bible study. <laughs> so I fed the python on Tuesday night. And everybody would come to watch the snake eat. And then I would say, now let's open our Bibles. <laughs> Man, I'd pack that apartment with people that came to watch the snake eat, and then we'd study our Bibles. But when we got married, Denise didn't want any more snakes. Now, so here's the thing. I know something about snakes. And a venomous snake 
is a nervous snake. A python is sluggish. That is not a nervous snake. That's why you can carry it. You can play with it if you play with snakes, and it won't strike you. It's not a nervous snake. But a poisonous snake is a very nervous snake, and it strikes, and it strikes fast. But just because you've been bit by a poisonous snake does not mean you have been injected with venom. Their fangs are long like the syringe of a needle, and their head is filled with poison banks. But no poison goes in you unless the snake pushes down with its head. And when it pushes down with its head, that's like pushing on a syringe to give you a shot. And when the snake pushes down, it begins to shoot that venom into your body. Well, now the Bible tells us this was a, what kind of snake? A viper, which would be the most nervous of snakes and the most deadly. And the Bible tells us that it fastened onto his hand, which means this was not a mere bite, but this snake bit so deep into the flesh of the apostle Paul that it couldn't get free. It was literally stuck on his hand. That's what the word fastened means. It was stuck on his hand. And because this is a venomous, nervous snake, we know how this kind of a snake would respond. It would be pushing down with its head over and over and over, trying to unload all of its venom into that victim. And the next verse tells us, when the barbarians saw the snake hanging on his hand, which means that snake was fastened onto him and hanging onto him for so long that there was enough time for all the barbarians to come down to the fire to see the foreigner that has the deadly snake hanging on his hand. Now look what the Bible tells us next. Are you with me? And when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, it really means to be hung, to be clinging, couldn't get off. They said among themselves, no doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffers not to live. Isn't that amazing? When something happens to you, people immediately assume you've done something wrong, you're under the judgment of God, or maybe you're just reaping something that you've sowed. Religious people respond the same way. The truth is he was right smack in the middle of God's will. He was headed to Rome where he had a destiny, and the devil was trying to hinder him, create an impasse so that he could not get there. What do you do when you get bit by a snake? What does faith do? Shakes it off. Look at verse 5. And he shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. What if he had said, I've just been bit by a snake. This is a deadly snake. This is obviously my end. You know what would have happened to him? He would have fallen dead on the spot. But this man had a word from God. The word was he would appear before Caesar. He wasn't going to sink in any sea. He wasn't going to die at the hands of any barbarians. And no snake was going to put him in the ground. This man had a destiny, a word from God that he was going to fulfill. And when that snake bit him, he just shook it off. And when the Bible says he shook it off, it means to violently shake, which means it did not easily come off. He had to shake and shake. Come off. Get off of me. I will appear before Caesar. Get off of me. Shaking that thing off until finally it came off of him. And I want to tell you something. When you're in the ministry, there will be plenty of opportunity for you to be bit by a snake. Anybody here ever been bit by a snake? Oh, I've been bit by some good snakes along the way. Some of them brothers who smile as they inject the venom. What do you do when you've been bit by a snake? Well, you shake it off. What is the option? 
The option is to say, I'm so hurt, I'll never trust again. I just don't know if I can continue my ministry. That's exactly what the devil wants you to do. When that man messed up our contract and we lost our building, the devil was hoping that Rick Renner would say, that's it. I'll never do business in Russia again. I'm so hurt. Instead, I just shook that thing off. I have a destiny and I'm going to fulfill my destiny. You're going to fulfill your destiny if you shake it off. You just got to shake it off. And I like the fact that he had to shake hard because sometimes it's not easy to shake some things off. If you've been through a disappointment and the devil tries to lamb blast your emotions reminding you of your failure, you've got to work hard to shake that thing off. That you shake and shake and shake and shake until finally that thing falls in the fire. And if you'll take a position of faith, you'll feel no harm. Faith swims. Faith builds a fire. Now, friends, that may sound very simple, but there's a lot of people who just quit. But when you find yourself in a bad situation where it's cold, use your faith to change your environment. And when you get bit by a snake, just shake that snake off. And by the way, when you get bit, people are watching. Look at the next verse. How be it they looked. People watch when you get bit. People watch when something happens to you. And when he should have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly, that'll tell you how poisonous the snake it was. But after a while they looked a great while and saw no harm come to him. Now here's what people do. If you make a faith declaration that you're going to do something, you have a word from God. Anybody here have a word from God? You've declared it to your church. You've told it to your family. You've declared it to the heavens. You've told it to the devil. You're declaring your word from God. Then something happens unexpected. And people watch. And when nothing happens to you immediately... They watch a great while. <laughs> they say, well, it just hadn't hit him yet. Just give it a little time. Just give it a little time. When the shock wears off and they realize what's happened, it will be devastating. People are watching you. And the most important sermon you will ever preach to your congregation is how you respond to disappointment and how you respond to an attack. Because when you remain steadfast, when you remain stable, and they watch, and they watch a great while, and nothing happens to you, it affects the way they think and the way they believe. This verse says they changed their mind and said, He is a God. <laughs> now, notice what happens when you stay in faith. I'm going to tell you, things happen along the way. Things happen. We live in a world where there is a devil that does not want us to fulfill the will of God, and he tries to stop us. Things happen. Paul was in a shipwreck, stranded on an island filled with barbarians. It's cold. It's raining. He has been bit by a snake. But through all of those things, this man is firm in faith. He has a word from God. He has a word from God. It doesn't matter if he lost his passport. He's still going to Rome anyhow. It doesn't matter if he got bit by a snake. This man's going to Rome. He has a destiny in Rome. It doesn't matter. And because he remained in faith, look what happened. Verse 7, And in the same quarters were possessions of the chief man of the island. This word possessions is really the word for the villa or the mansion. It was a palace whose name was Publius, who received us and lodged us three days, the King James Version says, courteously. The Greek actually says 
in luxury. This was great opulence. Now Paul has gone from a shipwreck where he's lost his luggage, lost his passport, lost his money, he's lost everything, but because he has walked in faith through every one of his ordeals, now he's gone from a shipwreck to a palace. He is living in the finest home on the whole island. And not only that, and it came to pass, verse 8, that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux, to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. Verse 9, so when this was done, others also which had diseases in the island came and were healed. Now he turns his crisis into an opportunity. It becomes a revival. And I want to tell you, friends, where there is an attack is where there is opportunity. Where there is disaster is where there is an open door. And now Paul has found an open door. And rather than waste time waiting for the next ship to come by, he begins to hold a revival meeting. And the word of God begins to be preached throughout the whole island. Now look at the next verse. Who also honored us with many honors. Now, when you read that in King James, it's kind of funny. Honored us with many honors. Does that mean they gave him a medal? Does that mean they brought him a trophy? What does that mean? The Greek actually says it just like this. Who also honored us with an enormous sum of cash. Now, this is important. An enormous sum of cash. One Greek expositor says... It describes so much cash that it was unthinkable that one person could have so much cash. Now, this is important. You'll see why in just a moment. So now, he has gone from a shipwreck. He is living in a palace. He has lost all of his personal belongings. He has lost all of his cash. Now he has an enormous sum of cash. And not only that, when it's time to leave, this verse says, they loaded him with everything that was necessary for the journey. So now, he's got cash for the trip. He's got new clothes, new jewelry. He's decked out looking much finer than he looked before he ever lost the ship and his luggage. Been living in a palace. You know how long he lived in that palace? For three months, the Bible tells us. Stranded on the island with barbarians, living like a king, eating the finest food, having a fine time, healing the sick, preaching the gospel, getting offering after offering after offering after offering until now he is loaded with cash. Now hold on. When he leaves the island... Notice how he leaves. Verse 11, after three months, we departed in a what? What kind of ship? <laughs> a ship of Alexandria. Alexandria was the finest port city in the world. It was the home of Cleopatra, who had just died about 70 years earlier. Alexandria... Only the finest came out of Alexandria. And because that was where the fleet of Cleopatra had been, it was the finest ships on the Mediterranean. These were the Rolls Royce. These were the Bentleys. There was nothing better than a ship from Alexandria. And not only was it a fine ship, but it was under the sign of who? Castor and Pollux, two pagan deities. But they were the two pagan deities who protected the richest, sleekest, most expensive of ships. Several days later, Paul's friends are waiting for him in the south port of Italy. They're standing looking out at the Mediterranean all the slave ships that are coming in. <laughs> Wondering which one of those slave ships Paul's going to be on. All of a sudden, someone notices a ship from Alexandria. Oh, look at that ship. People begin running down to the port to look at this fabulous ship. 
Do you see who's standing on that ship? Is that Paul standing on that ship? And the ship comes closer and closer and closer, and Paul standing there, find his clothes. Brand new luggage. Beautiful jewelry given to him by the ruler of the island. And mountains of cash. And the brethren said, Paul, where'd you get the ship? Where'd you get the clothes and all this cash? I could hear him say, well, brethren, it's kind of a long story. <laughs> Had a little shipwreck. Got bit by a snake, held a revival, took up a lot of offerings. <laughs> now listen, when he finally arrived at that port, read it for yourself. He had so much money. The Bible tells us he leased a house that he lived in to the rest of his life. And it was a huge house rented in central Rome, which would be like central New York City or central Moscow. Rome was the center of the world at that time. There was no property more expensive than that. And if you read the rest of the chapter, his living room was so big that he assembled all the Jewish leadership of the city of Rome, and they all came to his house at one time, and he held a meeting to tell them what he believed and why he was in Rome. And to the end of his life, he lived on the cash that he got from the pagans on that island. He might have been a little hindered on his way to Rome, but he never stopped. He had a word from God, and he held on to that word until he found himself in the heart of the Roman Empire.